So um, it all started with everyone getting drunk and then an orgy broke out. So how's that for an attention grabber? I, I, sent, I sent that to a couple of friends last night. I said, how about this for an opening line to the sermon? And they're like, you've got my attention. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going with it. So I'll just throw that out there and say, I'm gonna come back to it in just a moment. I don't think you'll forget it. But today is part two of a series that we started a couple of weeks ago called God Can't Do Anything. And, and the premise behind this series, the foundation beneath this series is this idea. It's God's greatness isn't confined to what he can do. God's greatness also extends to what he can't do. Um, God's great because of what he can do, but oftentimes we neglect or you know, ignore or we just don't spend enough time thinking about that God's greatness is also connected to what God can't do. Uh, what God can do is good news. And also at the same time and with equal weight, what God can't do is also good news. Uh, in week one, we talked about the fact that God can't learn. God can't learn anything new because God already knows everything. God can't learn anything because God already knows everything. And, and we talked about it from a really personal perspective out of Psalm 139, because God knew you and God knew me and God knew us from before we were ever born. From eternity past, God knew us. He knew all the details, all the nuances, all the turns, all the ups and downs of your life and my life. And the good news is, he who is known as forever and the one who knows us best is the one who also loves us most. So the idea that God knows everything and can't learn anything really is the springboard that gets us into today's content. And here's what we're gonna talk about. God can't change and God can't change his mind. God can't change is the broader backdrop behind what we're gonna talk about. And when we zero in on it just a little bit more on a personal level and a practical level, uh, we're gonna talk about the fact that God can't change his mind and why that is good news. So with that in mind, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you changed your mind? When's the last time you changed your mind really? I'm talking about something significant. I'm talking about something important, something consequential. Uh, when is the last time you changed your mind about something consequential and significant? Uh, when's the last time you changed your mind about something political? Um, for years and years, you believed this, but you paid attention, you read, uh, you came you know, face to face with some new facts. And so you decided, I no longer believe this. I no longer think this. And you changed your mind. Uh, when's the last time you changed your mind about something in society or culture? And for years and years, maybe for most of your life, you, you thought this, you believed this. This is what you said about this particular issue or this particular topic. But over time, your thoughts evolved. Over time, your position changed. Your thinking changed. Uh, when's the last time you changed your mind about something theological? Um, you were raised to believe this and you were taught this as a child and as a teenager or maybe as a young adult, but then you decided to be a student for yourself and you decided to read it for yourself and you decided to read what other people had to say about it and you changed your mind, you changed your opinion, you changed your position. When's the last time you changed your mind? Um, Chances are you've probably not, you know, done that very often uh, because most of us are reluctant to change our minds about things that are really important and really important to us. And, and the experts say that the reason that we're reluctant to change our mind about things that are important to us is because we get emotionally connected to our answers. 
And when we get emotionally connected to our answers, our thoughts, our opinions, our positions, our ideas, our frame of thinking, uh, it gets integrated into who we are. It becomes part of our identity. And so changing our mind or changing our thinking, it, it seems risky and it seems dangerous. And it's a threat to us because in, in some way, it's, it's tinking with our identity. It's messing with our identity. Uh, we've gotten so connected to what we think or what we believe or our positions, or our ideas, we're, we're just not willing to change our mind. And so then we live in what, you know, experts call confirmation bias. And we just go through life looking for evidence and looking for information that supports what we have chosen to believe. So we go in search of evidence that convinces me I'm right. And we look for evidence that convinces us that everybody else is wrong. That's confirmation bias. And then uh, it, it's a real risk. We can end up living the rest of our lives justifying and defending our thinking even when we're confronted with facts that suggest that we're not uh, you know, correct, that we're not right. Uh, we end up justifying and defending the way that we think, even when there's evidence that outright exposes that we are wrong. Um, uh, it brings me to kind of our philosophy, you know, and how we live, most of us, uh, and, and you've probably experienced this, that once we think we are right, uh, we aren't prone to thinking that we might be wrong. And if you've been married for half a second, you know this is true. Uh, you know this is true of your wife. You know this is true of your husband. That once you think you're right, uh, you're not prone to thinking that you might be wrong. Now, we don't want this to be true, and, and we hate that this is true, because we would love to fancy ourselves as open-minded, not gullible, though. We, we love to think of ourselves as flexible, not intractable, that, that we have flexible thinking, that we can think about things from different angles and we love to think of ourselves as thoughtful and not dogmatic. Uh, we love to think of ourselves in, in those terms, but here's, here's, the, here's the reality of the matter. We love the idea of being able to change our mind more than we actually love changing our mind. We love the idea that we can and that when necessary, we would. We love the idea of being able to change our mind more than we actually love changing our mind because we just don't do it that often. So when it comes to the idea that God can't change, and when it comes to the idea specifically that God can't change his mind, this is where some of the tension begins because the idea that God can't change and that God can't change his mind, I've never had a conversation about this with someone you know, off books or off the record or you know, just kind of shooting the breeze over coffee. I've never had this conversation with anyone where there doesn't seem to be an emotional value attached to this conversation. This idea that God can't change his mind is not emotionally neutral. Uh, because some people, and, and I don't know, it may be you, it may not be you, but I, I've tried to read a lot and I've tried to take all kinds of conversations that I've had over the years and, and just kind of broad stroke this. But, but for people who believe that God can change his mind, they, they love the idea of being able to change God's mind. Uh, there's something that we like about thinking that we can change God's thinking, that we can change God's plan. We can change or alter in some way God's purposes, especially when it conflicts with our own thinking and especially when it conflicts with our own plan. Uh, there, there's something about that that's comforting to us. Uh, some people find peace in believing that somehow they can get God to reverse 
what his original plan was or what his original decision was concerning a matter. That God in some way could be bribed or cajoled or manipulated or you know, controlled or influenced in such a way that God would reverse his original course, that he would reverse his original decision. And for people who think along those lines, it seems to offer hope to them because they see the ability to change God's mind or the fact that God can change his mind, they see it as a chance that there's always a chance, there's always hope that God may change course, that God may reverse a decision of some sort. And if they believe that, uh, they believe that to be a source of hope or a source of comfort or a source of peace. And as I've thought about it now for months in, in preparing for what we're talking about, it seems to me from my perspective that the people who like to think that way, they, they love the idea of having influence with God, that the ability to influence God in the direction that we think God should go, that we can have influence with God to get God to reverse a decision that's more in alignment with the decision that we wish God would have originally made, uh, that there's something you know about having influence with God that gives us hope no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through. Um, the only problem with that is, uh, beyond the fact that you know God is God and we're not, but I understand why the idea of having influence with God is an attractive one. Uh, but more than just the idea of having influence with God, I think there is a part of that that we like because it seems like we have a shred of control, a shred of control concerning what happens, even if it's the illusion of control. We love the illusion of control. Uh, the illusion of control is very comforting to us and we love the idea of being able to influence God. We love the idea of maybe having a shred of control, uh, being able to hold a trump card, being able to get God to change or reverse course. But the problem with the thinking that says God can change and God can change his mind, uh, the problem with that is the Bible and what the Bible says. Uh, because, you know, we're people of the book and we believe the Bible is God's word and, and we believe, you know, it's inerrant in everything that it teaches. And, and, and in the scripture, we're taught over and over again that God can't change. God can't change. God, God can't change his mind. Let me throw some verses at you. These, these notes are all on the app, so you can download them. But let me throw them at you in rapid succession just to give you a, a snapshot of what the scriptures teach. James, the half-brother of Jesus said, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father, who created all the lights in heaven. It's like, okay, but then he says what he came to say. He, God, never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Pretty straightforward, pretty clear. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, the psalmist said, the Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. So who's there in this particular passage? Who's the nations in this particular passage? That's you, that's me, that's all of us. You got your plans, I got my plans, everybody's got their plans, but the Lord reserves the rights to frustrate your plans, to thwart your plans, to thwart my plans, to frustrate my plans. God reserves the right to do that because you've got your plans, I've got my plans, we've all got our plans, but the psalmist said, the Lord's plans in contrast to our plans stand firm forever. His, his intentions never can be shaken. So his plans stand firm. They do not deviate. They do not waver. They stand firm forever. His intention, his purposes, they cannot be shaken. It's like, okay, that's pretty clear. How about Isaiah? Isaiah says, remember the things I've done in the past 
for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Tell me why you say that. Because only I can tell you the future before it happens. God says, I know the future before the future ever happens. I knew what was gonna happen, God says, in time and space before time and space was even created. Before there was time and space, when it was only eternity and only the reality of God in all of his power, all of his splendor, all of his knowledge, all of his grandeur, all of his greatness, before time and space, God says, I knew everything that was gonna take place in time and space. And everything, everything, everybody talk to me. What's that word right there? Everything. Now, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to know what that word means. It's just as you suspected. It means everything. Everything God says, I plan, will, will come to pass. Bank on it, count on it. Hey, it's gonna happen. For I do whatever I wish. Almost, you know, a little bit of a contrast to say, not whatever you wish, not whatever anybody else wishes. I do whatever I wish because God, this is what the theologians call the sovereignty, the providence of God, that God is God alone, that God is self-sufficient alone. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need anything. God is God by himself. And he says, hey, I'll do whatever I wish. Now, that may bother you, but I don't think it should. And, and I think you'll know why it shouldn't bother you by the time we finish up. Isaiah goes on to say, or let me give you just the NIV version because I love how the NIV uh, translates verse 10, that I know I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times. God says, I can reveal what the future looks like. And we see that happening sometimes in the scriptures with prophets and with people who show up on the scene and God gives them a word and says, this is what's gonna happen. God says, I can make known the end from the beginning because I know the end from the beginning. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Malachi 3, verse six, the prophet quoted God in the clearest of terms. I am the Lord and I do not change. I am the Lord and I do not change. It's like, okay, okay, that's, God can't change. And if God can't change in any way, he certainly then if we follow it out and reason, God can't change his mind if God can't change in any way. Uh, Job, you might be familiar with the story of Job. He went through hell. He tried to talk God out of all the things that God was allowing to happen in his life. He lost his family, he lost his health, he lost his friends. And, and all along the way, Job was begging God, God, please knock this off. God, let's find another way. And, and by the time Job gets to the end of the book, he realizes, hey, that's not how it works. And he says in Job 42, two, he says, Hey, I know that you can do all things, God. And now I realize that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It can't be thwarted by me. It can't be thwarted by anybody else. I can't have enough faith to thwart your purpose. I can't have enough morality to thwart your purpose. I can't conjure up enough goodwill in whatever way I think I can conjure goodwill with you to thwart your purposes. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then 1 Samuel 15, 29, Samuel the prophet said, and he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. It's like, okay, well, that's what the scriptures say. And they're inspired and they're inerrant in everything that they teach. And we're a people of the book and we're like, okay, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm planting my flag. It must be true. God can't change. God can't, God can't change his mind. <laughs> we just looked at, hey, for people who tell you that our church, we don't use the Bible. I just took you through half of it just right then. I, 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 I mean, so there you are. We, we, we do believe the Bible. And, and so there it is. Obviously God can't change his mind, but you know, there's a problem. You say, well, what's the problem? The problem is what else the Bible says. 
What else does the scripture say? He said, well, what do you mean? Well, let me, let me give you a couple of examples and let me make our heads hurt for just a moment. Um, Amos, uh, you say, Amos? Who's Amos? I had an uncle long removed that was Amos. Who's Amos? We don't talk about Amos very much, but he's a prophet and he's got his own book in the Old Testament. And he's talking with God and God says, okay, my people have rebelled. And if my people don't come back to me, I'm gonna judge them. I'm gonna send this plague. I'm gonna send this judgment. I'm gonna send this, I'm gonna send that. And Amos says, oh no, no, please God, please God, please God, please God, don't do that. I beg you according to your mercy. I beg you according to your grace, don't do it. And in Amos 7, 3, it says, so the Lord relented. And in the Hebrew, the word relent means he changed his mind. The Lord changed his mind from this plan. Whose plan? His plan. It's like, what? He says, I will not do it, he said. I will not do what? What I said I was going to do. It's like, okay. Then in verses four and five, uh, God looks at Amos and says, well, I still have some things that I have against the people, so I'm gonna judge them for that. I'm gonna send this, I'm gonna send that, I'm gonna plague that and plague this. And, and then, you know, Again, Amos, he does the same thing. He says, God, please, 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 according to your mercy, according to your grace. And then three verses later in verse six, it says, then the Lord relented from this plan too. I will not do that either, says the sovereign Lord. It's like, what is, what is that about? Or Jeremiah 26, 19. Uh, king Hezekiah was king. God said, the people of God, the people of Israel, they've turned away from me. And if they don't turn to me, I'm gonna judge them unless they repent. So Jeremiah says, but... The king Hezekiah and the people, they didn't kill the prophets for saying this. No, they turned from their sins and worshiped the Lord. They begged him for mercy. Then the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had pronounced against them. And it's like, there it is again, or Jonah. God told Jonah the prophet, go to Nineveh, preach to them. They've turned against God. But if they repent, God will stay the hand of judgment. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated those suckers and he would have rather them all just split hell wide open. And so he was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go because I know if I go, they may repent and they repent, then you're not going to judge them. And I would really prefer you judge them. And so it's a great story. You should read it. Jonah was racist and, and he's in the book and, and you can find out that even our heroes of faith, we find them working their faith out in real time. He had a real problem with the Ninevites and God was gonna set the record straight and God was gonna help adjust Jonah's heart along the way if Jonah would cooperate. But in Jonah 3.10, it says, when God saw what the Ninevites had done and how they put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. Okay. It's like, okay, I'm a Bible guy and I'm with the Bible. But I don't know what I'm supposed to do when there's verses that say this and then there's verses that say something completely opposite of that. Now, one thing the students over here have probably already encountered is that our culture tries to use events such as this where the Bible says one thing here and a Bible, the Bible, same Bible says something different somewhere else as a reason to unfaith as a reason to not believe that this is a problem because it can't be resolved. Uh, th this is not contradictions that need to be resolved as much as it is truth that has to be held in tension. And holding truth in tension, especially when these truths seem to be in conflict with one another, can be a difficult thing, but there is a path forward. And, and, and it's a clear path in my opinion. But what are we supposed to do with all these verses? Are, are writers discounting other writers? Are they taking jabs at other writers who said that God can't change his mind, but they come along and say, nope, sorry, disregard that he can change his mind? You know, what's going on here? So the question we should ask is really, are God's plans unstoppable 
and unchangeable, or can they be thwarted and changed? Can God's plans be stopped and changed, or can they be thwarted and changed in any shape, form, or fashion? Are God's plans unstoppable and unchangeable, or can they be thwarted and altered? Which one is it? And in order to not really answer the question, but to show us perhaps a way to think about the question, I wanna show you a little passage in Exodus 32. Moses is God's leader. He is the people's deliverer. He shows up in Israel, uh, or shows up in Egypt rather. Israel's been a slave in Egypt for over 400 years. So he shows up, there's plagues. Pharaoh says, okay, I'm letting God's people go. Moses led them across you know, the Red Sea that was parted. They crossed over on dry ground. Then God let the sea come back together, swallowed up Pharaoh's army. Then a cloud by day and a fire by night led God's people. Uh, he fed them from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. Uh, he, he led them in such a way that it says their shoes didn't even wear out. And then he led them to Mount Sinai where he's gonna teach them how to be free. They've been slaves for over 400 years. Now he's gonna teach them how to be free because sometimes you have to learn how to be free when you've never had freedom. And so they go to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God because Moses is God's man. And Moses goes up to meet with God, to get the law of God, to deliver to the people of God. Well, God shows up on the mountain and there's smoke and there's fire and there's thunderings and there's lightnings. And it's just an amazing sight. And this is where we pick it up. It says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, his brother. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So they got bored. Uh, in the beginning, they were overwhelmed with emotion. They were overcome with reverence. They considered the thing such a holy thing and a holy place. They were so afraid that if they even touched the mountain where God's presence was attached to, that they would be that they would die. And so, but over time, like us, they get bored and the familiar is no longer fresh and they got a little ungrateful and they needed something new to capture their attention. So they took all the bling, all the jewelry and all the gold that the Egyptians had given to them on the way out of Egypt as a parting gift. They took all that gold and they melted it down and they made a golden calf, right? Remember this story maybe from Sunday school way back when? And then not only did they make a golden calf, but they declared a festival. And then they all got drunk and had an orgy. I told you, we're coming back. That's where the story begins. Right there it is. So they, they got drunk, they had an orgy, and it was just this, this whole thing going on at the bottom of the mountain. Remember, Moses is at the top of the mountain talking to God. So we move forward. It says, the Lord told Moses, because they've been talking while all that's been going on down there. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain, Moses. Your people, whom you... Moses brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. It's like, what? Whose people? <laughs> Whose people? My people? Not my people. Since when did these become Moses' people? This kind of reminds me of, you know, I don't know if it works this way in your house, but, you know, when, when your kid does something dumb and your wife comes to you and says, did you know what your son did? But it's her son who makes the honor row. It's her son that's gifted. It's her son that's sweet and loving. But your son is one step away from juvie. <laughs> what? And I kind of, this is kind of how it is. God looks at Moses, your people, and you brought them up. It's like, what's going on here? It says, how quickly they have turned away from the way I've commanded them 
to live. They've melted down gold and made a calf and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, help me read these words. I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Since when? Since when did God see this? Because this is an interesting question and it's one that has to be asked. Since when did God see this? Is he seeing this in real time? Is God discovering new information in real time about what's happening at the bottom of the mountain? Well, of course not, because we learned two weeks ago that God, that if our lives were a book, God read it before you were born. And if your life and my life were a movie, God watched it before you were ever born. God knew that these Israelites were stubborn and rebellious from before they were ever born. He saw them in their mother's womb, but yet even though he knew they were stubborn and rebellious, he decided to reach down and save them from slavery in Egypt because it's his pleasure to do just that. He is gracious, he is merciful, he is loving. So God's not learning anything new. Who's learning something new? Moses. Because Moses doesn't know what God knows. Moses can't see what God sees. Moses can't hear what God hears. Moses is learning new information. God's not, you know, talking to Moses and having a conversation and so enthralled in it. And all of a sudden, you know, one of God's handlers up in heaven, uh, one of his staffers slides a note in front of him and says, sir, you need to look at the bottom of the mountain. What? No, no, God knew this. God knew this before they ever got out of Egypt. God knew this before they were born. So the only person learning new information is Moses. So he says, now leave me alone, Moses, so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. And then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord, his God, which is an interesting thought to begin with. Oh Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your, your own people? whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such power and such a strong hand. Moses is like, um, I've been waiting to, for a moment to say this. They're not my people. They're your people. And while we're on it, um, I didn't bring them anywhere. This is your party. And you invited us and uh, that was your plagues. That was your thing you did with the Red Sea. <laughs> Amen, I just followed. Uh, so this is your people and you brought us here. Now this is pretty gutsy for Moses because it's almost like he's correcting God from earlier. Now, I, I, I give Moses the benefit of the doubt because I, I, I think in this context, it makes me think of Allison. And <clears throat> because a, a few years ago, I was invited to uh, pray for some reason at the at the United States Senate. And you know, it was a great privilege, great thing. And so they invited me to come pray over the Senate. Obviously my prayer didn't work very much, uh, but <laughs> I tried. And uh, maybe, maybe, it'll, maybe it'll, it'll happen later. But afterward, um, we were you know, graciously invited by the majority leader, our, our, our Senator from the state of Kentucky, Mitch McConnell, back to his office and he's gonna show us his office. And, snap a few pictures, sign them for us. And you know, it was, it was a great day and we were honored to be there and, and thankful for our leaders and all of that. And, and we were getting ready to take a picture and the staff and you know, photographers said, lined us all up. And then, you know, Moses Allison uh, steps out and, and, and says, Senator, no, I need you to stand over here. And, and tells the leader of the United States Senate, no, you can't stand here. 
uh, you got to stand over here. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of what Moses did with God. It's like, I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't really matter. I'm right. And I don't know what you're thinking, but here's the question. Is God wrong in this? Is God mistaken? What's going on here in this give and take? Because we just read through this and not think about it, then it's not very helpful. It says, why let, the, why let the Egyptians say, and this is Moses talking to God, he's kind of countering. Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with evil intentions of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth. It's like Moses said, God, there's some things you obviously haven't thought through. Uh, if you rescue these people only to bring them out and, you know, enact Project Smote on them at the bottom of the mountain, it's just not going to make a whole lot of sense. The Egyptians are going to think you're a bit schizo, and people are going to be very confused with whether or not you're gracious and mercy and abounding in forgiveness, or whether you're just bitter and grudge-bearing. Uh, so, I, sir, I think you haven't thought about this enough. You ever felt like that? You ever had that conversation with God? Of course you wouldn't admit it. I wouldn't either. But God, I want you to take a different course because I don't like this course. This is Moses. Now, we, we don't use this language very much, but I promise you a lot of the emotions sometimes you will feel when things happen in your life, when things don't go your way, people disappoint you, people hurt you. When it seems as though change is happening that you can't control, that you didn't invite, that you don't like, the emotions that you feel in that moment are often connected to this type of sentiment that remains unspoken. God, I don't think you've thought about this. God, I think there's a better course that you can take. And oftentimes the emotional distress that we feel when sometimes life comes against us and we don't understand why would God let this and why does God allow this? It's because we think, God, there, you, there are some things you must not know there's some things you must not see. And I'm gonna suggest a different course. He says, so God, turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster that you have threatened against your people. Change your mind, God. This is Moses advocating for God to change his mind. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath, with a promise, with a covenant to them saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven. I will give them all of this land that I've promised to your descendants and they will possess it forever. Go ahead and throw verse 13 up there. Yeah, they will possess it forever. He says, God, would you remember your promise implying that God had forgotten it? And there's serious, serious implications that flow out of the idea that God could forget a promise. God, I need you to remember what you've obviously forgotten. You promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they would become a great nation and out of that great nation would come a great kingdom and out of that kingdom would come the final king who would be the savior of the world. You can't walk away from that promise. You can't break that oath. You can't break that covenant. You can't do that. So he's talking to God, you gotta change your mind because if, if you do what you're saying you're doing, you're gonna break your promise. And then here it is, you ready? Here it is. So the Lord, so the Lord. Sometimes you just have to. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he threatened to bring on his people. So what's going on? It seems from what we just read that God seems to change his mind based on the prayer of Moses. 
And because God had made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that Moses reminded him of. So here's the question we have to ask. Did God really intend to destroy his people and start over? Did Moses' prayer change God's plan, God's mind, God's will, or God's purpose in this matter? Is that what is truly happening here? Now, hold that thought for just a moment while you're thinking about that. Because the same Moses who wrote Numbers 32 is the same God, the same Moses author who wrote Numbers 23. And it's like, okay, I don't see where you're going. It's okay. The same Moses who wrote Exodus 32 wrote Numbers 23. And listen to what Moses says there. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? It's like, what does all of this mean? This is Moses's way of saying, God isn't like us. He's not like you, only bigger, stronger, and wiser. Anytime that I think that God is just like me, except he's bigger, stronger, and wiser, that takes me into some unhealthy territory. Every time that I mistakenly think of God in terms of being created in my image rather than me being created in God's image, it causes me to have some unhealthy beliefs and ideas and opinions about God. Listen, I have a finite imagination, a finite intellect, so do you, but God is infinite. How much do you think that finite intelligence can comprehend an infinite intelligence? How much do you think that those of us who are trapped in a finite space and time can truly entertain or grasp the infinite, eternal reality of God. That means that God is always gonna be bigger, stronger, wiser, and greater than we can ever think that he is. That God, his greatness is unsearchable, his knowledge is boundless, it's limitless, and we have no ability to fully grasp God. If we could fully grasp, fully understand God, God's not much of a God. So what do we do with Exodus 32? What do we do with Numbers 23? Well, we have to read the parts in light of the whole. And we have to know that God can't be contained in a box, except when God decides to put himself in a box. And when God decides to box himself in by his purposes, and when God decides to box himself in by his plans, and when God decides to box himself in with his promises, there's nothing that God can do to escape that box. I can't put God in a box. Only person could put God in a box is God. So God can't be contained in a box unless he puts himself in the box. And God can't be explained by neat and tidy formulations or equations. He can't be captured in a systematic theology book to a great extent. His greatness is unsearchable. His knowledge is without limits. So what do we do? And here's some things I want you to hold on to. This is what I want you to remember. These are the truths to hold in tension with each other. God's purposes are unchanging and they can't be thwarted. Whatever God has purposed to do in eternity, it will happen in time and space. Whatever God has purposed in eternity, it will happen in time and space. And I can't thwart it. You can't thwart it. I can't stop it. You can't stop it. You can't alter it. I can't alter it. No one can. What God has purposed to do in eternity, it will play out in time. And it will happen according to his way. And it will happen in his time. If God says he's going to do something, it's as good as already being done. And that's a fact. Second thing 
is that God's plans are unfolding and they can't be improved. God's purposes give birth to God's plans. And those plans play out in your life and my life every single day and the good and the bad and all the points in between. We always have been told God has a plan for your life. That's not true. God has a purpose for your life. God doesn't have a single plan for your life. God has lots of plans for your life to get you to your purpose, to get you to the meaning of life in its most basic, authentic, genuine form. So what does this mean for us? It means we can't screw it up. And that's good news because if anybody could screw it up, I'd screw it up. And I hate to burst your little self-righteous bubble, you'd screw it up too. Because if God had one single plan and life was like a big bunch of dominoes that God just got the dominoes going, if one domino missed another domino, we're in a heap of trouble. Or if we got God to intervene in the midst of the dominoes falling to stop and kind of send it another way, the whole thing's off. God's plans are unfolding in time and they cannot be improved. Now, in Exodus 32, it says that God changed his course, that God changed his mind because of Moses' prayer. But here, here's the irony of the story. God is the one who tells Moses to go down and see what's happening. Moses didn't know that the people had corrupted themselves. God knew. And God said, Moses, go down and take a look. God showed it to him. And then the very thing that Moses thinks when he sees God's people and knows that God says, I'm going to judge them, the thing that Moses thinks about is God's promises. So the thing that God is inspiring Moses to do in this moment is that Moses petitions God to change his mind based on God's own promises, as though God had forgotten his promises. So don't let me miss you and don't miss me. Let's meet together on this. Don't miss this. God had put Moses into a situation so that he would see the problem that God already knew about that he would see the problem, that Moses would remember God's promises, and that Moses would petition God to change course. Moses' prayer is itself on its own two legs part of God's plan in this story. Moses' prayer is not incidental to the story. It's not a side piece to the story. It is part of the plan of this story. God sovereignly, providentially puts Moses in a place where he sees a problem, where he thinks about God's promises, and he's inspired to pray and ask God to change course, and God does. And it brings us to the final point. Our prayers are instrumental, and they can't ever be meaningless. The text is clear. Without, without the prayers of Moses, God would have destroyed Israel. The prayer of Moses was the instrument that was used to get God to change his course of action because prayer moves the arm that moves the world. So here's the inevitable question. What if Moses hadn't prayed? Would the people still have been saved? Would someone else been raised up to pray the prayer? What would have happened if Moses hadn't prayed? Would the people have still been saved? Would somebody else still have to come along and, and pray it's like we could just get down a real rabbit hole of what if, what if, what if, and what if, and what if, and what if. And we're never taught to think that way about God's will or about his providence or about prayer. You say, well, can you help me understand it in some more basic terms? Yeah, I like the way A.A. Hodge put it. 
He says, does God know the day you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live. Well, what happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, then would that be the day that God has appointed for you to die? And it's like, okay, I don't know. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to think about that. And then he says, okay, let me, let me just make my point. Quit asking stupid questions and just eat. <laughs> Eating is the preordained way that God has appointed us to live. In other words, God ordains both the ends and the means. When you take a trip, you decide where you're going. You outline your purpose, you define it, you decree it. And then you know what you get to do? You get the plot, the path to that destination. You are in control of both the means and the end. You know where you're going and you decided how to get there. And here's the wonderful thing about God who knew the end from the beginning. God took every choice that we would ever make. God would take the choices of all of humanity. He would take your prayers and my prayers that he heard before we ever had life and he embedded them. He integrated them into his perfect purposes and plans. And in those moments, when we make our prayers known to God and our prayers intersect with God's purposes and God's plan, your, your prayers and my prayers become the instrument through which God intervenes, where God goes to work. So not a prayer that you ever pray is meaningless. It's never empty. It's not a waste of time. You say, well, what if God doesn't answer my prayer? Well, I'm glad you asked. He's promised that he has something far better than you could ever ask or imagine. That he's gonna take every bad thing and he's gonna turn it for good. That he's with you in the storm, he's with you in the darkness, he's with you in the light, he's with you in the good times, he's with you in the bad times. When you beg and beg and beg and beg and beg and beg and no answer comes, you can trust that his purposes are perfect you can trust that his plan is good, that it's for your benefit, it's for his glory. You don't have to check out on God. You don't have to relinquish faith because you believe in a God who is sovereign and he's providential and he knows all things. He controls all things. You begin to live life knowing that the one the one who knows all things, controls all things. He's at work in all things and he's working all things for your good. So keep on praying, keep on trusting because God has embedded your prayers. He's integrated your prayers as the instrument through which he will work his activity into this world. And when it seems as though he doesn't work according to your prayers, just know this, he's up to something far better. He's up to something far bigger. So keep on praying. Pray to the one who knows the end from the beginning. Pray to the one who, as Paul says, he's working all things out according to the counsel of his own will and purpose. The one who has taken all things and working them for your good. All the tragedy, all the pain, the disappointment, the betrayal, the abuse, the loneliness, the isolation. All of those things that you would have changed, all of those things you would have backed God up and diverted the path somewhere else. But for whatever reason, God let the path keep on going forward. You have no idea 
how he's redeeming that pain, how he's redeeming your story and how he's turning it for good. So be confident to know that your heavenly father knows and he cares and he hears. So don't stop praying. Don't stop praying for your children. Don't stop praying for your children's spouses. Don't stop praying for your children's futures, their future of faith, their future profession. Don't stop praying for your marriage. Don't stop praying for your spouse. Don't stop praying for people who are far from God because God has embedded and integrated your prayers into his perfect plan and purpose as the instrument by which he works in this world. He ordains the end as well as the means. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed. I pray that you speak, Lord. Speak to us. Let us hear what we need to hear. God, give us the confidence to keep praying. For those of us who've we've carried pain and disappointment and maybe even bitterness and angry at God because we feel like God ignored our prayer and God didn't answer our prayer. God, help us today to find the faith and the trust to know that your, your heart is good. Your plans are perfect. You're good and we can trust you. We can trust you with the pain. We can trust you with the disappointment. We can trust you with the unanswered prayers because God, we know that your ways are better. They're higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So let us trust what we possibly cannot understand. All of your ways, your will, and your purpose. Speak, Lord, in Jesus' name.